Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news gathered by the Interfish.com editorial team. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor, and John Evans, Correspondent. What a run of news we have had over the past few weeks. We have been to the Boston Seafood Show, uh, and, uh, and we've covered uh, just about every possible angle you could think of uh, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, although the situation changes every day and brings new things for us to explore. We're going to spend some time on today's podcast looking at a few of those major changes that have already happened as a result of, uh, of Russia's invasion and, uh, and how it, it may be changing things uh, going forward. But first, let's talk a bit about the Boston Seafood Show. Uh, John Fibrillo, you and I were there. Um, you can tell us uh, maybe a bit about your impressions. It was a very different Boston, um, but, um, but, uh, but I think a good one. Um, your impressions? Well, uh, it's no surprise the show was smaller in the sense fewer exhibitors. They spread the space out nicely, so they took up uh, much of the uh, convention center that uh, they usually fill to the to the wall. Um, but it, I was saying to somebody at the show, if this were no, if we were in normal times, the mood at the show would have been dour, given Russia. And, you know, the supply chain problems, et cetera, et cetera. However, the mood, I thought, was buoyant. People were just, you could see they were just happy to be back amongst their peers, sharing a drink, a joke, you know, talking business, of course. So it was really interesting. I mean, I, I thought the mood was great. And I think the show will be considered a success no matter how you look at it. I agree. And I think it bodes very well for the uh, Barcelona show at the end of this month. I think a lot of people are going to be looking forward to meeting clients, meeting colleagues, uh, suppliers. So uh, I think it, uh, it, it was a really, uh, a really positive uh, event for everybody. Right. So let's move now to Ukraine and Russia. Um, there has been a seismic impact on the seafood industry not at all to um, to to not uh, to not acknowledge the humanitarian crisis, but uh, what we do for a living is we write about seafood. Uh, but let's talk about the impact on the flows of seafood uh, since the invasion. We've seen this this radical reshaping as a result of the the shipping um, the shipping disruptions. Uh, already and COVID and the way that, that consumption has changed. But now we have Ukraine, which um, for seafood, especially for whitefish, is explosive. But John Evans, can you tell us a bit just in your coverage about what Ukraine has meant for, for trade flows kind of coming on top of the disruptions that we've seen in, in shipping? What, what's your sense right now of what this is going to mean? Uh, it's, it's, it's meant quite a few things, actually. I mean, you start with Ecuador, if you, if you like. Uh, their shrimp exports to Russia fell sharply uh, in February. The the, uh, the invasion started on the 24th of uh, February, and in that last week, um, that, uh, that just had a big impact. There was there was um, there was uh, 
the shipments turned around uh, and ex Ecuador and exports to Russia fell 28% by volume in February. Um, and we had uh, Chilean salmon producers for one reason or another um, saying that they were now no, not shipping to Russia, having made all the efforts to um, uh, put in uh, remote uh, uh, sanitary, sanitary testing um, in, in the previous year to, to uh, appease Russian uh, officials. Um, and then uh, more recently this week on the other side of the Atlantic, um, we have French primary processors warning that the high energy costs uh, and logistics costs um, linked to the conflict had um, depressed uh, landings of um, whitefish sharply and other seafood sharply. And uh, that's a big deal uh, for the French because they've got about more than 30, 34, I think it is, quayside auctions dotted along their long coastline. And um, all kinds of uh, trades rely on that, seafood-related trades, including um, uh, restaurants and uh, re retailers, uh, fishmongers, uh, packaging, logistics, administration and sales. So, yeah, it's it, the, the, the effects have been wide-ranging, really. Yeah, and as, as I discussed, um, you mentioned whitefish in France. Um, just to catch anybody up that doesn't know, uh, the 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 bans and sanctions have included the U.S. banning direct imports of Russian seafood into the United States. Uh, the U.K. has imposed sanctions on a variety of goods that will hit uh, that will hit whitefish and John. I think the percentage is thirty five percent increase in tariffs. Yeah, thirty five percent, and that's another. If I yeah, if I can go just carry on with that a second. Yeah, that, that that's obviously. Um, uh, had an impact for Britain's uh, fish and ship uh, sector, which has got around about 10,000 shops or outlets. And uh, it's sent them uh, scurrying to look for alternatives, including now considering Saith and um, Tilapia, which are they, uh, uh, there's a small band of uh, outlets and one national chain, which is, is trialling that to see if that uh, will go down well with the public. The problem is, and the, the, the public's always been resistant in Britain to, to changes to ca uh, cod and haddock, but uh, uh, everybody has a everybody has a price. So uh, you know, <laughs> it depends on which part of the country you're in. Uh, but you know, will they reach that price point soon? Right, and that that's kind of one of the interesting uh, impacts on the whitefish side of things. Is you know, is what might replace Russia in. There are so many different ways that the Russian uh, whitefish uh, sector uh, is critical to to global uh, to global seafood. Now, the majority of Russian uh, cod and uh, haddock and Alaska pollock, all of this stuff makes their way into things like fish and chips, things like uh, fish fingers, um, particularly in Europe, and. Those uh, those products, without having those products, uh, suddenly you have a, a massive, massive shortfall. So to give you an idea, the Alaska Pollock, we're talking about the U.S. caught Alaska Pollock, um, roughly, let's say around 1.2, I think this year it's 1.1 million metric tons of total allowable catch. So that's a lot of fish. 
Um, Russia on its side uh, for 2022 has uh, around 2 million metric tons of total allowable catch, 1.9 million metric tons. So these numbers are so big, it's hard to kind of even envision it. But think about all that fish then being caught as, uh, as headed and gutted fish, frozen, moving to China, being reprocessed and making it into, into markets. It's massive, massive volumes. So as retailers, uh, companies have, uh, yeah, countries have said uh, that, that they don't want to purchase Russian fish, suddenly we have absolute chaos because you have all this volume on the market um, that needs a place to go. You have demand that's needed, but or you have supply that's needed, but Norway has uh, its cod committed and prices there are already ridiculously high. Um, or at least I should say record, uh, nearing record highs. Um, in the U.S., same product is committed. So this is not going to be an easy, uh, an easy switch for people to make. Um, John Fiorillo, there, there's so many different implications. What am, I, what am I missing here? There's just been so much. We've been covering it in a whirlwind. You're not missing much, but you said it wouldn't be an easy switch, and it it won't be one that is done simply in the short term. Um, you know, the 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 Russian situation is going to uh, impact seafood for a long time to come, assuming all these sanctions stay in place, which they appear they will, because uh, Russia is showing no signs of wanting to leave uh, Ukraine or anything like that. Putin's been, uh, you know, nominated to the war criminal list. So um, that all will have to get worked out. So this is a, this is a long-term um, supply chain, seafood industry changing event. And, you know, you opened this section talking about reshoring. Well, during our, our webinar or during our seminar at the uh, show, um, you know, it, it, it came to it came to light that, you know, this whole idea of globalization, which has been embraced for so long, most of our lifetimes, probably um, it. it it's cracking right now. Um, the the idea that we can just globally move product, process product anywhere, um, it, it it took a hit. I'll I'll put it that way, and that's particularly troublesome for seafood, which is the most globally traded product in the world, maybe with the exception of uh, oil. But um, so you know, the, you, you've got to kind of look long-term at the current events and, and try and figure out how they will fundamentally change um, the industry overall. And, you know, I, obviously nobody knows completely at this point, but I think it's a good good bet to say that we are we have entered a new era as far as the globalization of seafood trade. Yeah, and... I think Kim Gorton and Slade Gorton made good points about that um, in just saying that, you know, to bring things back domestically uh, to some of these countries is a big challenge. And in particularly, um, uh, particularly in light of, of labor costs right now uh, that have just been exploding. So suddenly you've got some real, real challenges, uh, as you say, John, about 
how seafood is uh, is going to reach consumers, and it's very unclear now how exactly that's going to to play out. But what what is clear is that uh, the Russian seafood industry is um, is 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 going to have to completely rethink everything. Um, the United States, although for whitefish, the U.S. isn't a major importer directly from uh, Russia for its products. It's um, together with its direct imports and its its imports via China, which will pose some real challenges in terms of trying to crack down on any uh, any imports of Russian product, no matter what country it is. Um, but the imports into the U.S. are relatively small, actually, compared to Europe. It's really Europe that's the challenge that's going to face the biggest challenges here because so much of um, uh, of the the um, fish fingers and frozen uh, fish items that I mentioned earlier, they they do rely in good part on uh, on this uh, what's called twice frozen uh, Russian products. So as I mentioned, fish going into China being thawed, refrozen into blocks that can be used uh, to process into other products. So Europe's really going to feel the the uh, uh, the pressure. Um, but in the U.S., um, setting aside whitefish for a second. Crab, Russian crab is a mainstay for the U.S. Uh, crab market, particularly for king crab. And the Bristol Bay Red King crab season was was canceled. Um, and uh, anybody, any Americans, or I guess you could say anywhere in the world, if you go and look for, for crab on your shelves or go out to eat and try to order crab, um, you are going to really need to uh, shell out a lot of money if you wanna, uh, if you wanna have that for dinner, um, so it's only gonna get worse to the point that um, crab prices. John, you wrote about this; have they've just gone um, crazy, and they seem to be at least for now. Consumers are paying them. Well, they have been uh, during co- you know, during the two years of COVID. Uh, crab has been one of the success stories as far as significant increases in volume and uh, volume sales and value sales obviously but um i i mean it's hard for me to believe that somebody's gonna pay 43 dollars a pound at costco for king crab i mean that's what it's costing right now <laughs> that they sell a frozen box uh uh 10 pounds of crab legs uh king crab legs product of russia by the way uh, a few years ago, uh, when it was Pacific Seafood supplying it, I, I bought some for Christmas. It was $200. The other day, it was like $440 or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, and, and okay, so there's not enough uh, Alaska crab anyways because of the, the closure you mentioned. Um, Apelio uh, from Alaska has been affected, too. Um now you can't bring in any from Russia, which has, you know, become quite a cornerstone of the U.S. crab supply. Um, you know, it's forced Canada to bump their snow crab quota up uh, 32% the other day, I think, just to kind of take take advantage of this market. And the Dungeness crab, guys, which, you know, Dungeness crab is wonderful, but, you know, it doesn't measure up as far as the size and impact of like a king crab. Nevertheless, uh, they're they're seeing the highest ex- vessel value for their product in history um, off Oregon, Washington, California. So 
it, it, you know, if you're sitting on crab right now, you're probably sitting on gold. Um, but the question will be, what happens going forward if we can't really bring in any sizable portions of Russian crab? And, you know, we we still don't know if we'll have a king crab season uh, of any magnitude in Bristol Bay next year um, in Alaska. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's a tough crab market. I, I imagine you'll see it start disappear from menus um, if you haven't already. I haven't I haven't really checked too much, but well, you know, it's obviously every species that that we cover and um, ones we don't cover too. Everything is getting uh, is getting more expensive. Um, John, I want to go back to uh, to the UK and to the fish and chips sector. Um, you cover it closely. I mean, what are, what are they saying? How are they handling this? This is such an important industry to the UK. It's such an important important market for uh, anybody selling cod and haddock, be it Russia, Iceland, Norway. Um, it, it, it's a market that, um, for the seafood industry in Europe is, is so critical, but these, these companies are really going to struggle. I mean, they, they may be able to switch over to these other fish, but even if they don't, um, or even if they do, they're still really kind of on edge here. Uh, and it's not just, um, the price of fish, which is, um, hitting, um, fish and chip shops, uh, there's a sort of uh, a myriad of things. There's uh, raw material costs for things like potatoes and the fertilizers to produce potatoes. Some people, some farmers are, th- are thinking it's, it's not worth producing potatoes uh, at, at, at the moment. Uh, sunflower oil is, is a, a big, big export from Ukraine and uh, going back to the Ukraine story. So that's another thing in there. Um, there's uh, there's hikes on um, national insurance, which is a tax which pays for pensions and, and things like that, that which is coming in to, uh, in fact, came into play today on, on April the 1st, as, as we record this, along, along with um, an increase in the uh, the minimum wage, um, which was brought in uh, by Tony Blair back in 1997. Um, so, yes, it's uh, it's difficult times for the, the, the fish and chip uh, um, sector and every time I speak to Andrew Crook who is the president of the National uh, British Friars Federation it seems he's telling me about some uh, one two three uh, fish and ship owners who just given up and closed their doors because for you know all the reasons I've just mentioned you know they just can't um, keep it going yeah it yeah, I'm curious. I remember um, both of you might remember years ago that it was kind of a scandal in the UK press uh, that the fish and chip shops were found to have been using non non cod and haddock, uh, and I think it was pangasius or tilapia or something along those lines. Um, yeah, I think it was pangasius. I think it was pangasius, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, and and I, I think that was just sort of. Um, it's it's it was one of those adjustments uh, along the way of of understanding that aquaculture has a a major role in people's lives, both in the UK and uh, United States, and yeah, everywhere around the world. Yeah, and, and the interesting quote uh, that, that uh, or point that came from 
uh, my recent conversation was that, you know, uh, that people are going to have to be more adventurous, you know, unless they want to play, pay really high prices. Yeah, I, Pangasius is a really interesting one. And, and our colleagues, Dominic Welling and, and uh, Rachel Mutter wrote a great piece about the potential for that fish to fill uh, the void. There, there really aren't a lot of other options out there for, uh, for the types of products that get made uh, with Alaska Pollock um, and, and frozen cod. Um, and, and Pangasius is quite interesting. It's a, uh, it's a primarily grown in Vietnam, although there's rising volumes out of India and a few other countries, but, um, it goes from egg to market. Uh, so as soon as you plant it in the pond and when it's ready to be harvested, uh, something like eight months compared to salmon, which is 18, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable the amount of fish that can be produced uh, if, the, if the market is there. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. Uh, one expert that uh, Dominic spoke with said he was unsure because of the reputation. Um, so similar to, to years ago, John, um, you know, I, I think in other markets as well, uh, Pangasius has kind of struggled I don't know if that will still be the case, to be honest. I don't know if people are that surprised by the idea that there's um, different types of whitefish that are used out there. But what, however this plays out, there is going to be some severe, uh, severe inflation. And of course, fish and chips is just, the, um, just one example of the, the, types of, uh, the types of markets that will be impacted. So yeah. Russia and Ukraine, um, as we discussed, so many other different uh, knock-on effects here. Um, Ukraine is, uh, is a massive grower of, of wheat and other vegetables, which uh, will end up um, impacting uh, aquaculture. There are um, quite a few companies that are uh, using Ukrainian products in aquaculture feed. Uh, that in turn ends up pushing up um, aquaculture prices, be it um, farm salmon or shrimp um, or other species. So all around, it's um, it's just kind of uh, kind of remarkable what what we're seeing uh, is the fallout from this. Um, John Fiorillo, one that was a real blockbuster this week. We don't know to what extent it's posturing, but was um, was the uh, was the director of the uh, the Russian Fisheries Agency. I'm not going to try to pronounce the actual name, um, but he floated the idea that Russia could might is looking at uh, taking a larger share of the Bering Sea Alaska Pollock catch. So this is kind of the the latest thing to pile on this whole idea of a supply disruption. We we worked quite a while on that story uh, with our, our, our Russia-based colleague. What's your take? Is this just talk? Is this really going to happen? You talked to some folks in the, in the U.S. as well. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there, there is like no formal um, quota sharing between the two. What uh, what does exist is a maritime boundary that was uh, agreed to in the 90s um, that the the countries, um, you know, they, they recognize, although Russia, I don't think, has ever ratified that agreement. Um, 
but nevertheless, they, they've been honoring it for all this time. So on the Russian side of that boundary, um, they take a certain percentage of Pollock, and on the U.S. side, they take a certain, and the lion's share, 80%, I think it is, is taken by the U.S. Um, you know, there's territorial waters and all that. So, yes, so uh, head of Russian uh, fisheries agency uh, floated, like you said, floated the idea, why don't we take 50% of what's in the Bering Sea? Um, and that would, you know, <laughs> be a size of it would cut the U.S. portion significantly. So uh, is it posturing? Yes, maybe, but let's keep in mind that Russia has been building a super fleet of uh, uh, factory trawlers for Pollock. Uh, they've been building up their processing sector. The U.S. certainly has not. Um, the U.S. side of the equation is fairly old and needs updating. Um, so, you know, they're serious about Pollock, I guess is my point. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's hard to tell, you know, especially in this climate, whether it's just posturing or if this may have merit. Um, I guess we'll, we'll see. Is this part of a long-term plan, John? Because you say they built, as we say, you know, they, they built the fleet up, you know, before they started building the fleet, were they eyeing that quota in the first place? You know, possibly. I mean, you know, Russia, I think, has been eyeing self-sufficiency, if you will, or a bigger tie-up with India and China for a long time. And, you know, to to move away from any connection to the West and, and things like that. So I, I do feel like this is part of a bigger plan that uh, uh, Putin probably has in play for not just fisheries, obviously, but for a lot of uh, industries within Russia. So we'll see. I mean, <laughs> and how, how do you know how this is going to go? It's like the early days of COVID to me when, holy cow, how's this going to end? Is the planet going to be annihilated? <laughs> is this virus going to kill everybody? Uh, you know, we're in the same spot right now with, with this. I mean, there are nuclear weapons involved, obviously, so things uh get get scary quickly so yeah it's you know john evans you really raised an interesting question and that's whether or not these these moves were planned and i uh, you sometimes get the sense that the russian industry has a different view of how some of these plans were to work out um and a, a difference in in what uh putin and his administration had in mind um, the whole uh, quota development program, um, which in essence is the, the, the mega fleet that John was talking about earlier, um, it, uh, it was aimed at producing vessels that could produce products that didn't essentially need to be reprocessed. Uh, you can read that as products that don't need to go via China. So the industry, I think, saw that, and I think most of us saw that is this this new uh, this new volume of higher quality products that could compete more directly with uh, with U.S. products, and it it really seemed like it was um, you know a, a step of positively bringing Russia more into uh, into uh, the sphere of kind of 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 
modern suppliers, I guess you could say. And now looking back on that, it it kind of seems, well, wait a minute, this this also gears them up for supplying the domestic market very much. Um, and of course, the, the Russia has had bans on most seafood imports from uh, most Western countries since uh, since 2014, I believe. So it, it's just very interesting that um, it seems sometimes like the the, the Russian uh, people and the the Russian uh, even the companies who tend to have connections um, don't always uh, don't always see where things are going from a long term perspective. Whereas um, certainly, it seems like Putin has has had some ideas about uh, where things are going long term. You know, I'll add one thing to um, to what you said, John, about Russia. And their move to take more of uh, the the catch in the Bering Sea. One of the things that I think is raised by just in the past few years, and you talked about kind of this idea of the deglobalization. One of the things that's been raised, not just in seafood, but just in geopolitically, is how much of of the way things function are based on tacit agreements and not actually signed uh locked agreements and it it's a it's it's a bit scary and i think it 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 really seafood companies will be wise to think about that and really think about why their businesses work the way that they do why supplies flow that the way that they the flow the way that they do and whether or not that's the right thing uh because so much of it has been driven on cost over the past couple of decades with the rise of processing in in China and other places. So now it it is interesting to see that some of these agreements can just be thrown out the window quickly. I was very shocked um, when our colleague um, told us about what the the minister, or sorry, rather the the, um, director of the agency, uh, Shestikov, had said. Um, Again, yes, it is part of the posturing that Russian officials have sometimes done, let us remind ourselves that February 23rd, there was still a lot of people saying Russia was posturing, and look where we are now. Um, But as we dug through those documents, uh, John and all three of us were digging through documents from, you know, whatever, 20, 30, 40 years ago to try to find out what the exact agreements were. There was really nothing nothing legally binding. Um, the maritime boundary, even that was pretty flimsy, which is kind of scary. So um, basically, we're reliant on these sh- on these shared oceans where we're, we're fishing on the same stocks, different countries. You're kind of operating on the honor system <laughs> that the other people are going to, um, to bear in mind the, the whole idea of the tragedy of the commons. And if a country decides they don't want to play by those rules, just imagine Russia could say, you know what, we're going to take 3 million metric tons from the Bering Sea, even though they only have a small part of it. Um, I'm just, I'm, topic, I'm talking, you know, in hyperbole here, but if they said they wanted to take a certain amount and didn't want to coordinate with U.S. scientists, wow. That, that coordination between the Russian and U.S. scientists in the Bering Sea uh, Pollock fishery is not really formalized. I mean, there's a structure to it, 
and it's been going on for a long time. So it's it's de facto formal in the sense that, you know, they've been doing it every year and they they work together very well. They're scientists. Um, so they're they tend to be, you know, focused on science and not politics. But. You know, I mean, the Russia, the Russian side or the U.S. side can say, Bleh, we don't want to we don't want to work together anymore. One thing, though, that keeps this keeps a bit of discipline on this is as part of the MSC certification, at least for the U.S. fisheries, there's a, um, a stipulation that they have to coordinate science with Russia in, in this particular fishery and particular area. So that I found very interesting. Um, but, you know, the broader point is they are, you know, this is this is just kind of scientists, you know, getting together and working together, which is fantastic. Um, but it's not a government to government uh, formalized type of thing. So that's kind of bizarre when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's the same in Norway. Uh, for Norway and Russia, it's it's more formalized in in Norway and Russia. It's there is a a very clear system in place for how they uh, harvest uh, Barents Sea cod and haddock. Um, but uh, but even even then, you know, again, these these rely on governments actually having relationships. And you can see that when that breaks down, that can be really problematic. Russia was, uh, was suspended from the International Council for the Exploration of the Seas earlier this week. And that uh, primarily uh, oversees North Atlantic fishing stocks. It's, it's scientific advisory. We're still not sure what that means exactly for how those fisheries are managed. Norway um, uh, are... are uh, our sister company in Norway uh, spoke with the Norwegian Fisheries Ministry, and uh, they said, "Look, our cooperation with Russia is going to continue as is, regardless of that." And for the same reasons that we're discussing, they need to have a stock that is sustainably managed. So you can't just say, "We don't want to deal with Russia anymore." It's really, really complicated. So while there are people that have not maybe made that. Maybe they have not made as firm a step as some would like. Uh, I'm sure that when you sit down in in those uh, in those conversations and, and rooms, you find that there it's it's far. There's 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 many many implications for for some of these things. Um, but you know it's it's just um, it, it is it's almost every single day. There's some new information coming out about how Russia's move is going to uh, change and shift um, certainly the, the world, but um, it, for seafood, it, it, it's going to have a very outsized, uh, outsized impact. Well, maybe we can wrap it up there. There's a lot more to talk about uh, with Russia, and, uh, and, and we'll certainly be, uh, be covering it very, very closely. So there'll be uh, more to read. You can find us on intrafish.com. If you want to follow our Ukrainian uh, coverage closely, uh, we do have a, a dedicated page where uh, any of our stories that are uh, related to it uh, are found. You can uh, go to intrafish.com forward slash Ukraine underscore crisis and uh, find that there. And uh, also, of course, you can go to our site and sign up for our newsletters and get your uh, updates on Ukraine there. 
We are going to be in Barcelona. That is April 26th to the 28th. I will be there. John Evans will be there. Uh, Hannah Gazelius, Dominic Welling. We're going to have a nice crew there as well as our, uh, our friends on the, on the commercial side of things. So uh, we're really looking forward to it. On the 27th, that's the second day of the show, we also will have an event. We're going to have our uh, leadership luncheon as we always have had for years and years, but not for the last two years. So make sure and join us at that. It's going to be great to have everybody together. Uh, and you can find out more about that on intrafishevents.com. One last little plug. Next week, next Thursday, uh, John Evans' new newsletter, Supply Lines, is going to launch. We're really excited about this. John spent extensive time covering shipping and supply and logistics uh, particularly over the past year. There's so much happening here. Our readers have asked for so much information on it, and we've been serving them, and uh, John's been spearheading it. John, anything to say about the, the newsletter and uh, what readers can expect? A couple of uh, interesting stories lined up. I won't give you too much detail about them, not to uh, spoil, the, uh, spoil the show, so to speak. But, um, yeah, one of the stories is on uh, charter cont- container shipping and how that uh, particular sector is affecting seafood. And the other one, which is always a popular read amongst um, the Interfish readership, is um, uh, cruise lines, which um, account for quite, um, or, or certainly did before the pandemic, accounted for you know, quite big volumes of uh, smoked salmon. So, yeah, that's uh, those two things to look forward to. Really looking forward to it, John. Uh, if you want to sign up for John's newsletter, we'll have uh, we'll have posts on social media where you can go directly in there. But you can also go to intrafish.com. In the upper right-hand side, you'll see the menu. Click on that and drop down uh, and click on the newsletters page, and you'll, you'll see it there. So highly recommend you sign up. There's just so much great coverage on it, and uh, things are just so complicated and moving so quickly in the world of uh, shipping and logistics and it's just a it's a, a topic that our readers have asked for uh, more and more so we're really uh, really excited to be bringing you uh, bringing you a, a way to keep on top of that all right thanks everyone and we'll speak to you next time